All right, let's uh, get started. We're going to quick review of what we covered in the past. And uh, what's going on here? There we go. We began talking about the introduction, and we looked at the courtyard. The courtyard is inside the fence. Let me give you a brief review on that. The first thing you come to, to the tabernacle, was the uh, gate uh, at the court. Remember, the gate would represent Jesus Christ, and he's the door to heaven, and the gate to the tabernacle was a picture of Jesus Christ. We looked at the courtyard fence that surrounded the whole tabernacle. It hung it was white linen hanging on gold rings, representing uh, Jesus Christ, the one I'm talking about, gold rings, silver rings. Jesus Christ hung on the cross, uh, the righteous one for our redemption. Then we come to the bronze altar. That's the first piece of furniture you would find once you entered the courtyard. The bronze altar was where they offered up the animal sacrifices. Uh, any Jew can enter the courtyard, only up to the bronze altar with an animal to sacrifice and the priest would take an animal and sacrifice it for them, then they'd have to leave. Uh, so that's the first thing they came to when they saw the gate. They went in, they saw the bronze altar. After that was the bronze laver. That was the next piece of furniture after they uh, passed the bronze altar. The bronze lavers where the priests washed their hands and feet before they went in the tabernacle. And so uh, if they did not do that, we know the Bible says they were struck dead. <laughs> They had to be cleansed. The altar refers to our justification, and the bronze labor refers to our sanctification. Uh, the next thing we looked at was the holy place. That's within tabernacle itself. Uh, which one are you looking at, Phil? Tonight's. Well, you can take them all back there with you, Phil, if you want to. They cost twice as much if you come in late, okay? <laughs> All right, the holy place. Once you walked in, you passed the bronze altar and the brass laver. Then you came to the holy place inside. We talked about the measurements of that. We gave that in our study. Then to the left-hand side, once you were in the holy place, the first compartment of the tabernacle, left-hand side was the golden lampstand, which lit the flames were fire run continually to give light inside the tabernacle. On the right-hand side was the table of showbread. And they had a piece of bread for each tribe of Israel. And then right in front of you was the altar of incense. To the left, the golden lampstand. To the right, the table of showbread. Right before you, before you come to the veil, was the altar of incense, which they burned incense continually around the clock. And the incense was a picture of our prayer. The bread, showbread was a, was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ as the bread of life. And the golden lampstand, type of Christ being the light of the world. And all was a picture of Jesus Christ. Then behind the altar of incense was the veil. Remember the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And it was uh, there uh, for to keep people out, except for the high priest once a year. All right. We move from the holy place. And last week we talked about the most holy place called the holy of holies. And we looked at the, uh, the general information about that. That's in your notes. And once you went in the most holy place, there's only one piece of furniture that was called the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the place where God himself dwelt. The lid was called the mercy seat. On the mercy seat, there was two gold cherubim. We're going to look at that later on in our study tonight. 
which hovered over that, and in between the two cherubim was where God would dwell. And that was made after the type of heaven. In heaven, there is a mercy seat. There is a two cherubim hovered over the throne of God, and it's a very picture of heaven itself. There's the mercy seat. We talked about that last week. Remember, the high priest would go into the holy place once a year with blood, a blood for himself, a sacrifice for himself, and also for the people of Israel, and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. I heard tonight someone said that when the priest went into the most holy place, he had a bowl of blood, he had a plant called the hyssop, and he would sprinkle it as he went to the Ark of Covenant, which made a blood-soaked trail to the, where God's presence was. What a beautiful picture that our way to God is through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So he had sprinkled it on the ground as he went to there, and then he had sprinkled upon the mercy seat to obtain atonement, to make atonement for the people of Israel and himself. He did that once a year on the Day of Atonement. Then we concluded last week looking at the cloud and the pillar of fire. These are the two different ways God manifested his presence during the 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And I shared with you last week, that was God's way of showing mercy to his people. Because remember, in the wilderness, there was a desert. And what's the, heat, what's the temperature like in a desert in daytime? Very, very hot. So he would he'd have a cloud uh, over his people, protect him from the heat. What's the temperature like at nighttime? Very cold. And he appeared as a pillar of fire at nighttime. So God brought uh, coolness and heat for his people while he was there. God takes care of us, does he not? And he, he, God is good. And we looked at that last week. So tonight, by the way, we share this at the very beginning. The layout of the furniture is a picture of the cross. When you come in the bottom here, the first thing you come to is the brazen altar, speaks of a justification. Then after that, you come to the brass labor where they wash their hands and feet, the believer's sanctification. Once they went into the tabernacle, over to the left, the golden lampstand, and then to the right, the table of showbread, and then right in front of them was the altar of incense. Then here we had the veil across here. And then inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Interesting how the layout was a picture of the cross. God makes no mistakes. Every thing is, has a purpose. And basically we're showing here that the way to the presence of God was through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, tonight we're going to talk about number five, the high priest. And this is where we left off last week. We're going to talk about the high priest tonight. <coughs> you say, Pastor, I've only got three pages of note. How we're going to cover all uh, We're going to get done with it tonight. We may get down early, but I'm going to try to go slow and try to add a lot to it. And so let's begin with the high priest. Again, there's a layout of the picture of the tabernacle. Again, you see when you approach it, here's the uh, courtyard gate. Here's the fence around it. The first piece of furniture, the gold, I mean the bronze altar with the offered animal sacrifices. Here's the bronze label where the priests washed their hands and feet. Here's the tabernacle itself. When you went in the tabernacle, to the left was the golden lampstand, to the right, table of showbread. In front of there was the altar of incense. Now remember that because that's going to be on the test next week. The layout of this thing, so you can hopefully fill it out. Then you had the veil. Behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God dwelt. Here he's there in a pillar of fire. Tonight, we'll look at the high priest, his clothing and what he did. So let's begin. You get a chance, you can read that scripture. Right, when you go home tonight, it talks about the high priest. 
And uh, the high priest's life was dedicated to serving the Lord and representing the people before their God. You know, I hope you write that down. Usually if it's a uh, underline, that's a blank on your sheet. The high priest's life was dedicated to serving the Lord and representing the people before their God. There's only one high priest. There's many priests, but there's only one high priest. Who was the high priest during the time of Moses? It was Aaron, his brother. So he was the high priest. Who's our high priest? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Aaron was after the tribe of Levi. What tribe is our high priest after? After the order of what? Melchizedek. That's in the book of uh, Hebrews, bears that out. Letter B, the design of the priestly garments was an expression of God's righteousness and merciful love for his people. We're going to look at each piece of garment he wore tonight. The design of the priestly garments was an expression of God's righteousness and merciful love for his people. I've tried many times to get one of those TV trays out making any noise. You can't do it. <laughs> That's all right. I'm joking with you. I, I've just I've tried myself before. No. Anybody else who need to get one, please do so. All right, that's, everybody got that? Okay, the first piece, look at the bottom down there, number one. was called the tunic. The priest dressed first, this is the first piece of garment he put on, and a checkered tunic of fine linen, of fine linen. Fine linen represent righteousness. That was the first piece of garment he put on, the bottom piece. Get a chance you can read about that in Exodus 28, verse 39. The next piece was a robe over top of that. Over the tunic, the priest wore a blue robe with golden bells and pomegranates. Excuse me, get my Bible. If you would, go ahead and turn to Exodus 28, please. Exodus 28. The bottom piece of garment was called the tunic. Made of fine linen. The robe which overlaid that was blue robe with golden. Notice at the bottom of the hem of that where there was bells and pomegranates. I don't know why it had pomegranates. I don't know the reason for that, but it shares with you the purpose of the bells. Exodus 28, look in verse 31, please. Exodus 28, 31. You've got Genesis, Exodus, the second book of your Bible. One person told me, he said, Pastor, why do you tell us where the books are at? I know the Bible quite well. That's wonderful. I'm glad you do, but many do not. <laughs> There's some people here that may not know the Bible at all, and they appreciate any help they, we can give them to find that. Uh, Exodus 28, look in verse 31, and thou shalt make a robe of ephod of all blue, and there shall be a hole in the top of it, in the midst thereof, and shall have a binding of woven work round about the hole, and where the hole, the uh, hebergron, join, excuse me there, 
that it be not rent, talking about being torn, and beneath him, upon the hem of that shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet, and notice here, round about the hem, there are bells of gold between them round about, and the golden bear and a pomegranate, and a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem, in other words, they alternated, and the hem of the garment. And it says, verse 35, and it shall be upon Aaron to minister, and his sound shall be heard when he goeth into the holy place, about the holy of holies, before the Lord, and when he cometh out, that he, that he die not. So again, I think I shared with last week, this part is not in scripture, but it's by tradition that they would tie a rope to the ankle of the high priest, that when he would go in the holy of holies, he would go in there with a bowl of blood once a year to make atonement for the people of Israel. And notice it said in verse 35, he'd go in, they would hear the bells ringing. As he walked, as he shook the hyssop, they could hear the bells on his garment ringing. And say, it goes on, as he goeth in, holy place before the Lord, and as he cometh out. And the, the tradition says, if he got in there and he was gone for a long time, he didn't hear anything. He didn't hear the bells ringing. He was in there a long time. It was assumed that something went wrong. He forgot the blood. He didn't do something right. And God struck him dead. And they'd have to drag him out by the rope. No one would go in there after him unless they be struck dead. Only the high priest could do that. Now, again, that's tradition. That's not scripture. But they said that's the reason. Of course, we know that's the reason the bells were there. They could hear the bells, him doing his work. And so... Uh, I bet the, uh, they were glad to keep the, hear the bells keep ringing <laughs> and, and ringing on the bottom. But anyway, that's the bottom of the robe. Let's move on to the next one. Ephod. Over the robe, the priest wore an ephod of gold, of blue and purple, and crimson yarn, and of fine twisted linen. Now, at the beginning uh, introduction of the class, I gave you the, what the colors represent. Each color in the tabernacle of the priestly robe represented different things. You can look those up, uh, what they represented as, uh, upon the priest. But it's probably a, quite a beautiful robe. The third piece of garment was the ephod. If I'm going too fast, please let me know. Some can write faster than others. So I want to be concerned of everyone. And if you need to go back, we'll go back. I got a button that goes forward and goes backwards. <laughs> so, all right, next one. The breastplate on the high priest. You see it number four. The breastplate and what is also called the Urim and the Thummim. The gold breastplate of the judgment hung from the chains of pure gold around over the shoulders of the high priest. Twisted like cords. In the breastplate were what is called the Urim and the Thummim. It is believed on the back of the breastplate there was like either a pocket on the back of the breastplate or it was on the garment which the, uh, in fact, this garment right here, the ephod. Either on the front of the garment, the ephod, or on the back of the breastplate there was a pocket which uh, held what was called the Urim and the Thummim. You say, Pastor, what is that? Now, if you've got your Bibles again, look in Exodus 28. Look in verse 15, please. Verse 15 and 16. 
It says, Thou shalt make a breastplate of judgment, of cunning work, after the work of the ephod, that was the garment below it, thou shalt make it of gold, of blue, and of purple, and scarlet, and fine twined linen, thou shalt make it. Four squares shall be in, uh, doubled, a span, there shall be length thereof, and the span shall be the breadth thereof. And notice it says, it shall be doubled, which they believe by that, that means there was a pocket in the back of it. Have a, a double stitch and allow that Urim thumb. So the Urim thumb was either on the ephod or on the breastplate. But what was the Urim thumb? Let's go to that next. Look in uh, Exodus chapter 28, verse 30. The same chapter, verse 30. It said, Thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the thumbin, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before the Lord. Aaron shall bear judgment of the children of, of children of Israel upon the heart before the Lord continually. Now, what was the urn? It's not clear in the Bible. There's a lot of conjecture. I'll tell you what the most common thought is and help you understand that. First of all, the urn means lights. The thumbin means perfections. Were gemstones that were carried by the high priest of Israel in the breastplate on the ephod. They were used by the high priest to determine God's will in some situations. So they were either on uh, a pocket on the ephod or on the back of the breastplate. The two gemstones were carried. One was called a urn, one was called a thumbin. Next, some proposed that God would cause the urn thumbin to light up in varying patterns to reveal his decision. Others proposed that the urn and thumbin were kept in a pouch and were engraved with symbols identifying either yes or no, or true or false. And when people would come to the high priest and ask him something, that whether it's God's will or not, then he would use the Urim and Thummim as believed by many of the latter part, that he would reach into the garment there and grab one of the gemstones. And when he pulled it out, he'd either say yes or no, or true or false. And that would be God's way of directing it, uh, given direction toward that. Let me give you two examples of that. Do not turn to Numbers. Number 27 is the, the choice of Joshua being taken Moses' place. And Moses went to the high priest and asked, is Joshua the next man to take my place? And of course, the high priest went to the Urim and Thummim to try to find out God's answer, yes or no. But if you would please go to 1 Samuel. Here's a story many of you know about David and David used this Urim and Thummim to ask God's will concerning going to battle. 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel is right before 2 Samuel, if that's helpful for you, okay? 1 Samuel chapter 30. In fact, I was looking at verse 1 here. To me, this is a, one of the amazing stories here about David. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. And it came to pass when David and his men went, were come to Ziglag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziglag, smitten Ziglag, and burned it with fire. So David and his men went off to battle. His wives and children and all the possessions were in this town called Ziglag. While he was away, the Amalekites came and attacked Ziglag and burned it with fire. Verse 2. And had taken the women's captives that were therein, and they slew any, not any, 
either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So as David was off to battle, he came back and he noticed the city where his family was was burned to the ground. You can imagine how he must have felt. And many times, of course, when enemy comes, they will abuse the ladies, they will kill the children. They don't know what happened. He didn't know what verse 2 said, none was hurt. He didn't know that till later on. But in verse 2, so David and his men caused, uh, came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire. Their wives, their sons, and their daughters had taken captives. Now, he had no idea at that time what happened to them. They might have been like Hamas did to the Jewish people, uh, Jewish ladies and the children. We don't know that. Uh, they didn't know that either. But verse two, 4, then David and the people that were with him, what did they do? Lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. They cried tremendously to the point they had no more power to weep. Have you ever cried that much? You cried to the point you just run out of strength, you couldn't cry anymore? Because again, they didn't know what happened to their family. They just wept to the point they had no more strength to even cry. And so that being bad enough, in verse 5, it said, David's two wives were taken captives, and Abigail's wife and Abel a Camelite. Verse 6, and David was greatly distressed. Why? For the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. So look up here. David was out serving the Lord in battle against God's enemies, and he comes back, and the city he lived was captured by the Malachites, burned to the ground. All they knew is the family was gone and all the possessions gone. All his men, the soldiers, wept. They could weep no more. And then after that, they turned on David. They blamed him. He's the leader. David, it's your fault that this happened. It says that in verse 6, And David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him. Now they're going to kill David. David lost his family and his possessions. Now they turn on him. And I love the latter part of verse 6. You ought to highlight in your Bible. Well, what did David do? The latter part of verse 6, David encouraged himself in the Lord as God. My friend, when everything goes against you, everybody stands against you, and you're all alone, where do you go? My friend, where did David go? He went to the Lord. He had no place to go. <laughs> he lost everything. So he encouraged himself. Well, I love that verse. I don't know about you. There have been times that uh, I've been very discouraged and down, and, and I, I find the Lord's always sufficient. He's always there. He's waiting for us to come. No wonder the Bible said David was a man after God's own heart. When he had nothing but God, he went to the Lord. And then he says in verse 7, look at it, please. And David said to Abathar, the what? The priest, Amalek's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the what? Ephod. Now, he was referring to was the, where they contained the Urim and Thummim. And Abathar brought thither the ephod of David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? So he went to this priest. He got the ephod, this place where the Urim and Thummim was. And he inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and to seek the enemy that took my family captive? And it said there, shall I pursue the troop? Shall I overtake him? And he answered, God answered him, pursue, thou shalt surely overtake them, and without Pharaoh recover all. So here David is using the Urim and Thummim. So one of the two stones would be, yes, 
or the two stones will be no. And so however they did that, they reach into the uh, ephod or the pocket there, and they will grab one of the stones, and evidently God and his providence will let them grab the stone which communicate God's will. And he evidently grabbed the one and said yes. And he took it out, God said go. And of course we know the rest of the story, he went and attacked the Malachites, wiped them out, got back his children, his wives, all possessions, no one's hurt or no one's harmed. But there David is using this, what they call the Urim and the Thumb. There's other accounts of it, but there's one of them right there. It'd be nice to have that in our lives, wouldn't it? You know, when the Bible's not quite clear on something, where do you go for an answer? Wouldn't it be nice to have you reach in your pocket and be able to grab a stone that says yes or no? Of course, we don't have that. And uh, uh, some people roll the dice. That's not what this is talking about. But anyway, let's move on. The high priest. Okay, let's talk about the stones in the breastplate. This, this is the breastplate that the high priest wore on his chest. Inside the breastplate were 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you still have your Bible there in Exodus 28? In fact, I closed mine. If you would go back there, please. Exodus 28. In verse 17, Exodus 28, 17. We saw there the breastplate mentioned in verse 15 and 16. Verse 17. And thou shalt set in the settings of the stones even four rows of stones. And he mentions each stone by name, what they were. And we're going to come back to that moment with each stone is. There were four rows of three. And it tells there the second row, verse 18. The third row, verse 19. The fourth row, verse 20. And the stones, verse 21, excuse me, shall be with the names of the children of Israel, 12 according to their names, like the engravings of the signet, every one of, with his name shall be according to the 12 tribes. There were 12 tribes of Israel, and each one of their stones was engraved one of the names of the tribes. Now, Here is the row there. You can follow me as I read it. I'm going to have you look at something I found interesting. The first row of stones was the sardis, the topaz, and a carbuncle. The second row was an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row was a ligure, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row was a beryl, an onyx, and a, ja a jasper. Something I found interesting uh, Go with me now to Ezekiel, please. Ezekiel, in chapter 28. You may have to use your table of contents to find that. You have Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. So you know you're close. Ezekiel 28. Something I found very interesting. I don't know if it has any correlation, but I... Uh, nothing in the Bible is without, uh, without purpose. Ezekiel 28. Here is a judgment upon two leaders of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. In verse 2, the judgment is upon the prince of Tyre. If you look at it in chapter 28, verse 1. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus. Now, the prince of Tyrus was a man. 
He was the human leader of this, of this uh, city. Now skip down, you would please, to the verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up lamentation upon the what? The king of Tyrus. It begins, the prince, by the time I show you, was the human leader, the king of Tyrus. Who is the king of Tyrus? See if you can figure it out as we read on. Verse 12, take up lamentations upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, notice the characteristic of the king, full of wisdom and perfect in what? Beauty. Read on, verse 13, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone, I want to skip over that, uh, down to verse 14, he said to this uh, king of Tyrus, which was in the Garden of Eden, in verse 14, thou art the what? The anointed cherub that covereth. Now, who is that? That is Satan before his fall. That's Lucifer. So look up here, please. The leader, the human leader of Tyrus was a man, the prince. The spiritual leader was Satan himself. Behind every human government, there's a human leader, and by the way, there's a spiritual leader. And usually you can find out who the spiritual leader is by the decisions that the human leader is making. If you read about the prince, it has all the characteristics of the king. I wonder who's in charge of the president of our country, the human leader. And if you notice the decision he's making, it's not the God of heaven by any means. And no doubt it may be the very one that was also the king of Tyre. But I want you to notice something. It referred to, remember I share with you, the mercy seat of the, of the Ark of the Covenant had two cherubs covering that. And notice what the title is given to the Satan here, Lucifer. It says in verse 14, Thou art the anointed cherub. There's many cherubs, but only one anointed cherub. It says, That what? Covereth. I have set thee so. Thou wast in the holy mountain of God. Thou wast walking down in the midst of the stones of fire. Verse 15. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. Notice Satan is created being. He was created perfect. And he was created perfect until iniquity was found in him. And, um, and then you skip all the way down to the latter part of verse 16. He's called again, I will destroy thee, O covering cherub. So again, it's believed one of the two cherubs that hovered over the throne of God was Lucifer himself. And he was perfect. But I skip over that verse. Notice again, if you would go back to verse 13. It said, this king of Tyrus, he was in the Garden of Eden. And Eden and the Garden, of the, notice every precious stone was thy covering. Now, interesting. Nine of the 12 stones on the breastplate of the high priest was also on Lucifer. Only the third row, which was the Ligar, the Agate, and Amethyst was not mentioned. Look at them with me, please. In fact, you get a chance, you ought to correlate them together from what the, the breastplate. It's every precious stone with thy covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold, and the workmanship of thy tablets and pipes was prepared in thee the day thou was created. Notice nine of the 12 stones of the high priest was also a covering of Satan. 
Lucifer. Why? I don't know why. I just found that interesting. The, the third row of the uh, breastplate of those three stones are not part of Satan's, but of his covering. Maybe it's referring to his beauty. Remember, he has created beautiful. And, uh, and uh, again, another point there in the latter part of verse 13, it says, after he mentions the nine stones, it says, the workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes was prepared in thee the day that was created. You know, in other words, his implication that Satan was created with musical abilities. Tablets and pipes are musical instruments. And they were created in him the day he was created. So he was created with these beautiful stones. He was created with musical instruments. And he was created beautiful and perfect before he fell. But anyway, that's a freebie for you there. What's that got to do with the breastplate? Other than the nine of the 12 stones that Satan also had, other than that, I don't know. But I thought I'd give that to you. Maybe you can do a little further study on it. Uh, it was given to Lucifer when he was created. All right, let's move on. The shoulder stones, number six. Upon the shoulder pieces of the ephod and the two onk stones. The ephod was the garment that, that uh, was underneath the uh, breastplate. The names of the sons of Israel, six names on each stone, are engraved upon the onk stones. So the 12 stones on the breastplate were the 12 tribes of Israel. On the two shoulder stones were the uh, six sons of Israel, uh, uh, on six on each one of those, showing that the high priest represented Israel, the founding fathers, and the, uh, the tribes himself as they went into the presence of God. And six names are engraved upon the onk stones. You can read about that in Exodus 28, 9 through 12, and 39, 6 and 7. I'll give you a moment to write that down. It must have been a beautiful garment. All right, can I move on? Have I got it? Do I need to go back? Anybody should say, go back, Pastor. All right. The, I'm saying it correctly, the mitri, or mitri, the turban, talking about the hat. The high priest wore a mitri or turban on his head made of fine linen. Again, fine linen was a picture of the righteousness of Christ. That was the turban he wore on his head. You can read about that in Exodus 28. And next, the holy plate. The holy plate was a crown, was worn on the turban, the picture of it there, number eight. Engraved on the plate reads, holy to the Lord, showing that the high priest was set apart. The word holy means set apart unto God. And the high priest definitely, that was his job, set apart for the Lord, representing Israel before God. He was the go-between. He was the high priest. He was the intercessor before a God for the people of Israel. Number nine, the censer. On the day of atonement, the high priest fills the censer full of coals from the altar. What altar was that from? The brazen altar. Remember the first piece of furniture when you walked in the courtyard where they made animal sacrifices, they take coals that will burn the animal sacrifice and fill the censer with it, coals from the altar as well as the crushed incense. Remember the two men, the two uh, sons of 
uh, Aaron took, I remember, coals from a, a different place, and when they went before God, God struck them dead. Remember that? We talked about that. Was was Hophni and Phinehas, was that their name? Uh, I, don't quote me on that. But they, we saw that they went before the Lord from a strange fire, and God struck them dead. So the high priest took the coals from the altar, of uh, uh, brazen altar, as well as crushed incense, and brings it into the most holy place and offers it before the Lord. Now, the incense was a picture type of the prayers of God's people. If we had time, we could show you that in the book of Revelation. It was a very picture of the heaven itself. The angels would present incense before the throne of God, and it said they pictured the prayers of God's people. So the high priest would go into the presence of God, representing the prayers of God's people, offering a sacrifice for their sins to make atonement for what they've done wrong. Everybody got that? Now, Jesus is our high priest. He is righteous and merciful, and he was willing to sacrifice his life for us and now lives to intercede for us. He died on the cross, make a payment for our sin, sacrificed himself, shed his blood for the atonement of our sin, was buried and rose again, and he lives today, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, the Bible says, making intercession for us. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. Just like this high priest would go in the presence of God with that censer there with this golden, the incense, offering the prayers before the presence of God, Jesus Christ intercedes in our behalf in the presence of God. We're going to show you why in a few moments. The Bible says no one can be saved if they go, no one can be saved if they go to God. No one, anyone, I'm sorry. Anyone can be saved if they go to God through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 to 25. We're going to look at that verse in just a moment. The Bible says anyone can be saved. You know, quite often when you talk about God's forgiveness and God can forgive anyone who comes to him through Jesus Christ, and quite often people bring up like Hitler, someone as bad as he was who was guilty of the death of over 6 million Jews. Could God... Forgive Hitler? Could God forgive someone who'd done terrible things like he did? And the answer, like you said, is yes. How many sins did Jesus Christ pay for on the cross? The Bible said he was the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but the sins of the world. Our friend, Jesus Christ died for Hitler. The sins of Hitler was on Jesus Christ on the cross. And God punished his son, Jesus, for what Hitler did wrong, and by the way, for what I've done wrong, and what you've done wrong. He died in your place, paid for your sin. And God offers forgiveness for anyone who comes to him through Jesus Christ. And you can be forgiven no matter how sinful or bad you may have been. My friend, Jesus Christ died for your sin. And, and we know God, you say, how do we know God accepted the payment Christ made? God raised him from the dead. The resurrection was God's declaration of the world that he, set, he was satisfied with the payment his son made for our sin. And so, yes, God can forgive anyone, no matter how bad or terrible they are. 
uh, he can forgive anyone. Next. All right. Here are some verses. Jesus, our high priest. It's the seeing then that we have a great high priest. Our high priest was not Aaron. Ours is Jesus Christ. That is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Knowing we have a high priest in heaven, God said, hold fast to your profession of faith. Don't give up. Keep on keeping on. Don't throw in the towel in your Christian life. Verse, the next verse. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. What that means, my friend, Jesus Christ understands what you're going through. He is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. He understands temptation. Notice here, he was tempted in every point as we are tempted, however, yet without sin. So he understands pain, suffering, rejection. He understands uh, temptation. He suffered all that for us, yet without sin. Notice the result of that in verse 16. He said, let us therefore come what? Boldly, where? Unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Notice the throne. When you go to the God through Jesus Christ, the throne is the throne of grace. Those who try to approach God outside of Jesus Christ comes to the throne of judgment. But we come through Jesus Christ. Notice what we can obtain there. Mercy and grace. How many say, I need grace and mercy? How about you? I do. <laughs> and according to that limitation, his mercy is anew every morning. And they're all found at the throne through Jesus Christ. Let me show you another verse. It says, in Hebrew, and they truly were many priests. In the Old Testament, they had many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. Aaron died. They had yet another high priest. He died, another high priest. So the priests of the Old Testament were many of them because they, were not, they could not continue because they would die. They would die. But this man, talking about the man Christ Jesus, because he continued how long? Forever hath an unchangeable priesthood. Then it says, the next verse, Wherefore he, the Lord Jesus, is able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for who? For them. I love that verse. It's verse 25. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost. I remember I heard a message from uh, Pastor David Kravitz. You heard him, Brother Kravitz? He said, God can save from the, from the guttermost to the uttermost. <laughs> I like it, don't you? From the worst to the best, he can save all of us. How? Those that come to God by him, seeing that he ever lives, make intercession for them. God makes intercession for us. Let me show you another verse. It says, uh, for such a high priest, talking about Jesus Christ, became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, in verse 27, Hebrews 7, who needeth not daily, as though high priest, as those high priests, to offer sacrifice first for their own sins, and then for the people, for this he did, Jesus did, once when he offered up himself. Remember the high priest, when he went to the holy place, holy of holies, he went with a bowl of blood, and he first sprinkled blood upon the mercy seat for his own sin, because he was a sinner, then for the sins of the people. But Jesus Christ, 
said he offered one sacrifice, not for his own sins, he knew no sin, but for us. The sacrifice, the blood he shed, was for our sin, not for his own. Uh, and he died once. His one sacrifice. Interesting, the high priest had to go in the Holy of Holies every year. Because the sacrifice he made that year covered all the sins of the past. Then the Israel keep on sinning. Then the end of the next year, he had to go back in there again. Every year in the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice. But it says here, Jesus Christ offered a sacrifice first and said then for his people, but this Jesus did once. His one sacrifice on Calvary was sufficient for all sin, past, present, future, when he died on the cross. All right, Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. How about Moses' tabernacle or the one temple in Jerusalem? which are figures of the true, but in the heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Uh, Jesus Christ, remember when the uh, diagram description, the layout that God gave to Moses Mount Sinai was a picture, a type of heaven. And so the tabernacle on earth was a type of the tabernacle in heaven. And it says here, that he entered the holy places not made with hands, figures of the true. Moses' tabernacle was made by hands, but the one in heaven is not. And Moses was a figure of the true tabernacle, which is in heaven itself. Notice what Romans said. I love this verse. We're just about done. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who, who is God's elect? Believers, you and I, if you trust the Christ as Savior, you are one of God's elect. It said, who is he that layeth in charge of uh, God's elect? It is God that justifieth, who is even, says, come and say, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again, who is even where? At the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for who? For us. Now the question, why does he have to make intercession for us? If you got your Bibles real quickly, we've got about five minutes, we'll be done. Go with me now, if you would please, to the book of Revelation. Revelation. I'm going to show you in Romans, there are two persons who intercedes in our behalf. Anybody know who they are? No, no, no. You know, I'm getting ahead. Satan doesn't intercede in our behalf. <laughs> yeah. Who are the two individuals that intercede on our behalf? The Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you that scripture. But it says here in Revelation chapter 12, look with me in verse 7. Revelation 12, verse 7. There was war in heaven. This is in the future. It has not yet happened. There's war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought with his angels, and Satan, the dragon, prevailed not, neither was found any, uh, found any more uh, place in heaven. And it says, verse 9, that great dragon was cast out, the old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out to the earth, and his angels cast out with him. In verse 10, and heard a loud voice saying, in heaven now has come the salvation and strength, the kingdom of our God and power of Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them day and 
uh, accuse them before God day and night. Who's the accuser of the brethren? Satan. So Satan has access to heaven. Notice here, he's cast out of heaven. This is not talking about when he fell. He, he was moved from as the place of the ark, the uh, anointed cherub. He lost his position in heaven. He was kicked out of heaven, but he still has access to heaven. How do we know that? Remember in the book of Job, he, he went to before God and accused Job. Remember that? The reason Job serves you, because you put a hedge of protection about him. And so he's accused of the brethren. How often does he go there? Day and night. So there's a time coming he's going to even lose that opportunity. He's going to cast out yet in the future. But he accuses. By the way, what's he accuse you of? We know the Bible says Satan is a liar. But you know, the thing is, sometimes he doesn't need to lie. He just, <laughs> we still do wrong, don't we? He may go before God and just tell exactly what you've done and not have to lie about it. And what, is, what does Jesus Christ do? He intercedes in our behalf. So the, the, the Bible doesn't clearly say, there's no doubt when Satan goes, I'm going to use myself. Or maybe he goes to heaven and says, hey, Lord, you look upon your servant, Jesus Christ. By the way, he's the pastor of First Baptist Church. Look what he's doing. Look what he did. And he may name him by name. And he doesn't lie about it. And I'm so grateful somebody steps up in my place, in my behalf. And maybe the, Satan would say, you know, he did that. What's, what's the penalty for sin? It's death. He needs to die. And the Lamb of God steps up in my behalf and said, I died in his place. I paid that debt. And he's forgiven. He can go free. And Satan has to leave. But he comes back. <laughs> Again, but anyway, aren't you glad you have someone to intercede on your behalf? And so the Holy Spirit does it through prayers, and Jesus Christ does it because we have an adversary who accuses us day and night. I'm so glad he's there. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. All right. Oh, by the way, we're done. <laughs> now, real quickly, i got four minutes. Ne next week, we're going to... Uh, have a, a quiz, and we say how well you listen, how well I talk. Then we'll have another video in the tabernacle. Please come back. You'll love the video. And remember I told you there's a place in Tarpon Springs that has a life-size tabernacle, and I want to do my best to make, do a field trip over there. And I've got something. This is the busiest time of the year, and every Saturday, which I'm going to start, I've got some plan. We've got deacons, parties, and many of you will be that. So what I've done, here it is. Here's the address. If you'd like to go over there yourself, which I cannot be able to take a field trip over there to take you, which I wanted to go all together, it'd be great to do that. I believe Brother Chuck Schaefer said he's been there how many times, Chuck? <coughs> Six or seven. Okay. He likes it. <laughs> you want to ask him about it. But here's the address. Uh, I hope you write it down. There's a phone number. And it says, if you want to tour the place, call for a, a tour, and it's free. It costs nothing. So I encourage you to go over there for yourself. Maybe two or three of them want to get together to go over there. And uh, my understanding is they do an outstanding, as a life-size uh, tabernacle uh, to the dimensions given in Scripture. It has a fence around it. has the uh, bronze altar. It has a bronze labor. It has the tabernacle. It has the holy place. It has the uh, veil with the Holy of Holies all there. So a bit well worth going and look at. To see that. So, all right, it's time to quit. Please come back next week.
Again, I'm going to have a little quiz, and, and we're not going to, we may grade it, but you don't have to get up and tell your grade. <laughs> we're going to you take, take the quiz, I'll give you the answer, see how well you did. I'm going to tell you, well, listen, I found when I was in college or in high school, I learned more from a test, sometimes failing, than I did passing it. Because I learned what I wrote wrong was wrong, and I didn't get it wrong the next time. <laughs> so anyway, come back next week, have a fun quiz. Then we'll have it as a 30-minute video on the tabernacle, and please come. We have, I've never showed it before, so it's not something we've seen before. So please join us next week. Thank you so much for coming. And if you still need some notes from the past classes, I'll be happy to get them for you. There is one notebook right there that has the notes of all previous classes with all the answers. So if you did not get that, you're welcome to it. It does not have tonight's notes or next week's. So if you want that, it's free. Come up here and help yourself. Let's bow together, please. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ being our high priest, that he is the mediator. The Bible said that your desire is that we do not sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate, a paraclete, a go-between, the Lord Jesus Christ before the Father, that he is there to intercede on our behalf, that when the accuser of the brethren comes there and mentions our name and what we've done wrong, Praise God, hallelujah, we have an advocate, the Lord Jesus, who speaks up on our behalf and said that's been paid for, it's under the blood, he can go free. Thank you, Father, for being there on our behalf. Father, help us to know that truth and help it to motivate us to serve you and live for you and try to live a life that's pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. God bless you. It's 7.59, you got one minute and we're done. <laughs> God bless you. See you next week. <laughs>